here is in 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 21, beginning about verse 10, and following through into uh, chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, this, this time when, when David was there and he was seized, and, and there's a lot of other things that happen. But David was in kind of a, a, a tight spot. Uh, he, was, he was facing an incredibly difficult situation. He was on the run. People were, again, pursuing his life. People were trying to kill him. Uh, people were trying to turn him over to those who were trying to kill him. He had foreign enemies on one side. He had insiders betraying him on the other side. He had a kingdom that was standing against them because of the waywardness of a mad king. And he essentially was running out of places to go and people to help him. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Maybe not to the same extreme that David was feeling it because it literally was for his life. But all of us have had some version of that experience where everywhere we look around us, we just see a hopeless situation. Where there should be friends, there aren't friends. Where there should be help, there's not help. Where there shouldn't be enemies, there's an abundance of enemies. And we just feel like everything's caving in around us, like the walls are closing in, like we're about to be crushed by all of our circumstances. This is where David is when he writes this psalm. So if you've experienced that, if you are experiencing that, if you know someone who is experiencing that sort of a feeling, this psalm just really might be for you. It might resonate well with you. And so when David found himself in that sort of situation where everything is just kind of crashing down around him, notice how he starts in verse 1 of our English text. Be gracious to me. And I, I, I want us to start off at the right spot. I want us to have the right kind of thinking. I want the framework of our minds to be oriented correctly as we walk through the psalm. When we are facing the most trying of situations, our first and greatest response, our first and greatest call, our first and greatest desire should be for God to be gracious to us. Because if we start anywhere else, if we start anywhere else, other than the grace of God, other than the favor of God, other than the mercy-filled love of God, if we start anywhere else, we're starting in the wrong place. Because friends, without the grace of God, without the mercy-filled love of God, without the compassion of God, we are nowhere. We are lost in our sins. We are separated from the Lord. We have no hope of God in this world apart from God's grace to us. And so when David recognizes that he is in the worst of circumstances, he starts with, the grace of God. Be gracious to me, O God. Now, why specifically was David wanting God to be gracious to him? He had a very particular reason why. Notice what he says. It's the oppression of the enemy, those who are surrounding him. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled 
upon me. That's terrible. That's awful. Interestingly, the the language here for trampled is kind of the idea of biting at or snapping at or sharply coming against it. It sort of carries with it almost a verbal notion rather than just a physical notion. And I think most everyone in the room who's lived a little bit of life can understand the idea of someone who is in opposition to you, snapping at you, biting at you, using their speech aggressively to hurt you. And he's talking about this notion here. Man has trampled, snapped at, bitten at me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. And then a repeat of that same language. My foes have trampled or snapped at or bitten at me. They've they've done that upon me all day long. There are many who fight proudly against me. And so there's this concern for the enemy. Now, I want to get something very straight and very clear about the the notion of what David says next. There's this really wrong-headed concept in Christianity that we should never be afraid of anything because the scripture says, I don't know, some version of don't be afraid a couple of hundred times in the Old and the New Testament. Don't be afraid, don't be anxious, don't worry, don't fret. It's, It's all over the place. And why does the scripture tell us over and over and over and over and over again to not be afraid and to not worry and to not fret? Because we are going to be afraid. We are. Anybody out there who has the wrong headed notion that you ought to just man up and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just not be scared of anything doesn't really understand the biblical concept of trust and fear and how they play off of each other. I want you to see what David says next in this prayer. Verse 3. When I am afraid. Now, if you want the more literal rendering, you could say, in the day... That I am afraid. In other words, David knows that day's coming. He knows he's going to be afraid. He knows that life is going to become so oppressively difficult and circumstances are going to be so wildly out of his control that his only natural response to what he sees going on around him will be fear. Now, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, and I'll say it again today. There's some pretty hardcore people in this room. I've heard some of your stories. Either from just the previous life you lived or military service that you had or situations that you've had to stare down. Some pretty hardcore people in this room. None of you are as hardcore as King David. I'm sorry, you're just not. As a shepherd boy, he went to the creek and got five smooth stones. 
and brought a rock to a fight with a nine and a half foot giant who was a Philistine carrying two weapons who had to have a shield bearer in front of him because he was a man of war. An entire army was cowering down on the other side of a valley and David said, I'll go kill the guy with my rock. Hardcore. And then when he went down there to confront the guy that he was going to kill with his rock, he looked past that guy to the armies of tens of thousands of war-hardened Philistines on the other ridge, and he gave them a speech, and he said, Today, my God will send the beasts of the field and the birds of the air to eat your flesh. Hardcore! Because guess what? It happened. And then they wrote a song about David, Shepherd Boy David, how he had killed his tens of thousands of Philistines. And his life just gets more hardcore after that. If there's anybody who could dare make the the declaration of, hey, you just need to not be afraid, it's David. And when things really get tight for him, as we see here in this psalm, what does he say? When I am afraid. So friend, if you're in here today and you struggle with fear, you're in good company. King David was afraid. In fact, you run through the list of all the great saints of the Old Testament, you'll find a story about every one of them being afraid of something. Fear is not necessarily sinful. What you do with fear might be. And so what does David do with his fear? When I am afraid, not sinful. Why? Because look at what happens. I will put my trust in you. Because I'll tell you who's not afraid. And that's God Almighty. He's not afraid, never has been afraid, never will be afraid because he's the undefeated, undisputed heavyweight champion of the universe. No one has ever come close to toppling God off of his throne. No one will ever come close to toppling God off of his throne. He even holds his enemy's destiny in the power of his sovereign hand. Says he puts his foot on their neck, and he laughs at them when they rage against him. Why? Because no one can thwart the work and plan of Almighty God. So what does David do? He says, I'm terrified, so I'll trust you. You're never afraid of anything. Because you have no reason to be afraid of anything. Because you are Almighty God. Look at what he says. He says, I will put my trust in you, In God, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. So he went from being afraid to trusting God, praising God for his word, understanding that God is a promise, uh, making promise, keeping God, which we'll see more in a moment. To not being afraid. One of the greatest ways to overcome fear is to stand behind the one who's not afraid. 
That's why when people are led into battle, they're never led into battle by cowards. It's not how that works. Hey, go find the, the, the most terrified dude in the unit. Let's let him lead the charge. Not, not going to happen. It's the picture of the playground bully picking on the little kid. And the playground bully is unaware that the little kid's big brother is the starting varsity quarterback who's 6'8 and weighs 240. And the playground bully doesn't know that little guy's brother's standing behind him while he's being a bully. And the little kid on the playground was really scared. He was afraid. And then big brother showed up. Wasn't quite as scared anymore. Why? Because there was somebody standing in front of him that wasn't afraid. And far superior to that funny little illustration is the greatness and the glory and the power and the majesty and the might of almighty God. And he calls for us to to shield ourselves in his righteous fortress on our behalf. And David knew that. David knew all of these things about God. So he went from being afraid to not being afraid. And so what does it look like to trust God? Because this is what David says. He's afraid. He trusts God. He's not afraid. So what does it look like to trust God? Often our reliance on the idea of God's sovereignty becomes an excuse for inaction in our lives. You would think somebody said, well, I trust God. And so I'm just going to let God do God's stuff. And I'm just going to sit over here and I'm not going to do anything because God's doing all of his God stuff. And I just trust God. That, that, that actually is not what it means to trust God. That, that doesn't look like it at all, actually. What does it look like to trust God? Knowing the context of this story, and that's why I gave you the reference from 1 Samuel chapter 21, starting in about verse 10 and running through chapter 22. I encourage you to go and read it later. But in the, in the context of this psalm, David did three different things all while trusting God. All right, I'm going to just give them to you and you can go read about them later. So the first thing that David did is he went to some other people and asked for help. Shocking, I know. That you can simultaneously claim to trust God and actually be trusting God while asking other human beings to help you. One of the reasons so many believers get into the messes of things that they get into in their lives is that they have this faulty notion that if I'm really trusting God, I don't need anybody's help. That is a lie beyond lies. Sometimes the only way that you can show that you're actually trusting God is to allow the people he's sending into your life who can help you to help you. And so David, while trusting God, the very first thing he does is he goes and asks for some help. Hey, I, I guys, 
these people are trying to kill me. Can I crash here for a little while behind your nice large walls and your gate and the army that you have so they won't kill me? And they let him crash for a little bit. Not very long, but for a little while, they let him come in. Second thing in the story that helps us understand the context of the psalm that David did while he's trusting God is, is David, this is wild, this is really great. He pretended to be insane. So he gets in with this group of people he asked for help from. They help him for a hot minute and then they'd say, you know what? It might be more fortunate for us if we turn David over to the people that are looking for him instead of protecting him. Like, it might go better for us if we do that. So David realizes that they're about to turn on him. And he knows that if he acts like a crazy person, they'll just send him out of the city instead of turning him over to the other people. And so he uses ingenuity and creativity to try to get through the difficult circumstance that he finds himself in, all while trusting God. He's not, there's no distrust of God here. In his process of trusting God, he uses his intelligence that God gave him to create an action plan to try to work through and navigate the difficult circumstances he finds himself in. It's kind of like uh, uh, the, the, the classic, Thing where, you know, the, the student, it's, it's late in the semester. Let me talk with the kiddos because, hey, it's late in the semester. It's Thanksgiving, about to be Thanksgiving. Got a few weeks left. And they're like, you know, I've, I've got a D in this class. And I, I just don't know what I can do to try to pull that grade up. Study. Do, do you have an assignment that's supposed to be turned in? Well, yeah. Have you asked for extra credit? Have you formed a study group? Have you used the ingenuity that God gave you as an image bearer to create a plan to try to get from point A to point B? Guess what? That's that's not distrust of God. You forming a plan of action to work through difficult circumstances doesn't show that you're not trusting God. It's actually a really profound way to show that you're trusting God. So David asked for help. David used a little creativity and ingenuity to try to work through a problem, all still trusting God. And then the third thing in the context of the story that David did to show that he was trusting God, he hid himself in a cave. He said, okay, these people, they welcome me in, but now they're going to turn on me. And I've got to get away from these people who turned on me. I've got to figure out a creative way to do that. Okay, I finally got away from the people who turned on me, but the other people are still chasing after me. I'll just make this the most massively awesome Old Testament game of hide and seek anyone has ever seen. I ran around these caves my whole childhood with these sheep, chasing them around and finding them and protecting them from wild animals. No one's going to be able to find me if I can just make it to the caves. I'll just go hide. And while David was hiding in the cave, guess what? He was trusting God. Friend, do not allow your theology of the sovereignty of God to be an excuse for an action on your part when you're facing difficult circumstances in your life. God has made us as image bearers, people of action. He wants us to do stuff. He wants you to ask for help. He wants you to use the creative and, 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 and intelligent mind that he's given you. He wants you 
to find safe spaces. I know that that seems like a really like modernist kind of deal, you know. David's the original safe space guy. I know that bugs a whole, a whole bunch of people just really got bothered. I'm sorry, but he was. He was like, hey, look, it's really hard out here. A whole bunch of you have been like, just come on out there and face the Philistines. Yeah, and he would have died. Like literally would have gotten killed. So David went and found a safe space. There's no Philistines in this cave. I'll just go hide there. Saul's not in this cave. I'll just go hide there. This is what he did. All while actually trusting God. I think that we have a bad notion of what it means to trust God. Trusting God doesn't mean that we don't act. When you get into your car and you fasten your seatbelt. You're still trusting God. You're just being really smart about these crazy East Texas drivers who might run you off the road. When you go to sleep at night and you lock your door, you're not distrusting God. You're trusting God through the intelligence he gave you that you probably shouldn't leave your door unlocked in the middle of the night. I've recently, it's only been in the past couple of years, stopped locking the door inside of my closed garage. Because I grew up in Memphis and there's ways in, like seriously. So it's a little, it's a little different here, you know, I... I might can leave that door unlocked now because there's a whole other door outside of that one that they can't get in. And so maybe we'll do that. So anyway, but that's the context. Trusting God doesn't mean an action. Now, I want you to notice here what David has to say about the enemy that he's facing, the enemy that he's dealing with. Verses five through nine. Notice in verses five and six, the enemy's work, what the enemy is doing. All day long, they distort my words that could also be translated trouble my affairs. All their thoughts are evil against me. They attack, they lurk, they watch, they wait to take my life. So the enemy's work is to twist the word of David to pursue him with evil desires to try to harm him in any way that they possibly can. And that is the work of the enemy still in our life today. The ultimate enemy, Satan, it speaks of him in the New Testament of the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The enemy of sin that continues to dwell within, the cancerous presence that it is, trying to eat us and consume us from the inside out, causing us to not properly bear the image of God. True and actual enemies and other people who stand against the gospel and therefore against us. And notice here, David talks about the enemy's punishment, what happens to this enemy, what, God, what he desires for God to do to these people who are standing against them. Notice in verse 7, because of wickedness, cast them forth. All right, because they are wicked, God throw them out. In other words, remove them from the covenant reality. He calls for God to notice the sorrow and brokenness that he's experiencing And he knows that the enemy will be turned away because God is for him. God has made a covenant with him and God will keep his promises to him. But he desires for these enemies to be pushed off, for these enemies to be moved away, for these enemies to no longer be in influence and power and in relation with the way that things are in the world. And. I want to caution everyone here this morning because as we continue through book two of the Psalms and then particularly when we move into book three out in the future, 
there are some psalms where there's some pretty aggressive prayers against wicked people, against enemies. Pretty strong calls for judgment on those people who are wicked. And if we're not careful, we'll begin inappropriately modeling our own prayers after those. And what do you mean by, what do I mean by inappropriately modeling our prayers after those? If you've just been a world-class jerk and just going around being rude and ugly and offensive and mean-spirited to everybody around you, and a whole bunch of people just really don't like you because of that, you don't need to pray in precatory psalms against them that God would smash them and their babies against the rocks. You need to stop being a jerk. You, you need to pray for yourself that God would cause you to look a little more like Jesus in the way that you deal with other people so that they won't hate you because of how rude you are. Now, if you find that you're actually a pretty nice person who reflects Jesus well, who's compassionate and kind and gracious and slow to anger and all the other host of things that the scripture says Christians should be like, and then people still hate you because you're showing them a whole bunch of Jesus and they don't like that, then maybe, just maybe then, you can pray for God to like move your enemies away or make life hard for them or make them come under conviction or whatever kind of thing you want to pray. But you want to make really sure before you start praying aggressive prayers of judgment against an enemy, that they don't hate you because you've done things worthy of being hated. Like we got to be real careful with that. It's a joke that I make with people all the time. I say, well, you know, Jesus used to say really harsh things to the Pharisees. Yeah, and Jesus used to raise people from the dead. Well, Paul used to say really hard things to, to uh, other religious leaders. Yeah, and Paul used to work miracles and give sight to the blind. So maybe until I get to the place where I know I'm not being a jerk and I can work some miracles, I might hold off on the, hey, God, throw them into the third and fourth and fifth levels of hell kind of prayers against my enemies. And maybe, just maybe, I should do a little self-reflection first. To make sure that I'm squared up and okay the way I'm supposed to be. So let's be careful that a psalm like Psalm 56 where David's like, cast them forth and throw them out and crush the enemy. And he's praying like that, that we don't go, that's how I'm praying for that guy down the street. Now, it might not be the way you need to pray for him. That might not be the right way to go. Okay? All right. So the enemy, he wants him to be punished properly. Now, notice here toward the end. At the end of this, from verse 10 through 13, at the end of the, of the psalm, David emphasizes this glorious truth that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Notice what he says. He repeats kind of like what's the chorus in this psalm. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then notice what he says in verse 12. Your vows are binding upon me, O God. That's the language of covenant. I will render my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. So David emphasizes that it's 
God whose word I praise, God whose word I praise, God whose word I trust, God whose word I'm leaning on, that I'm trusting in, that I'm delighting in. David trusts what God says. And probably one of the greatest struggles that Christians in our era have, we don't trust what God says. We either have a lack of trust because we have a lack of patience. We want God to hurry up and do what God's going to do instead of patiently enduring the difficult times, waiting for God to do what God's going to do. We have a hard time looking past our current circumstances and recognizing our eternal glory bound future resurrection circumstances. We have a hard time seeing that we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ when we're actually hiding in the cave and people are trying to kill us. And and so there there becomes this struggle to trust what God says. And God says to us that he loves us. If we're his people, he loves us. He cares for us. Christ is a shepherd to us. He, he gathers us in. He protects us. He comforts us. He, he transforms us. He forgives us. He delivers us. There's a host of things that have happened to us and are happening to us that we often look past because our circumstances are so stressful and we stop trusting what God has said and we start trusting the temporary reality of the short-term pain and suffering that we find ourselves in. David understands that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He is a promise-keeper. That's what he is. And because of that, David echoes once again that he will not be afraid. Why not? Because he's bound to God's covenant. God's vows are binding on him. Which means, hear me, if God's vows are binding on him, then the promises that come with those vows are binding on him. God does not place you in his covenant and not also supply for you the blessings of that covenant. And if you are in the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the, this is what the New Testament says, all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus. It's a promise that God has made. If you're in Christ, Every promise that God has ever made to his people is already a yes to you. If you're in Christ, you don't have to be afraid. Even when your circumstances are terrifying, you don't have to be afraid. And then notice what David points out. He points out two deliverances that he has received from God because his promises are true. First, he has received deliverance from death. Now, in this case, that's literal. David should be dead. There's a lot of people trying to kill him. And he's still alive. Like he actively knows every time he breathes, God has delivered me from death. I mean, a lot of times we just kind of read through the story of David and we read it in a very nonchalant kind of way. Like, yeah, okay. Philistines hated him and Saul had the entire army of the nation of Israel after him and they had people killing the priests to try to get to him and they had people hunting for him and looking for him. And there's almost no, David had to live in caves and had to act like a crazy person. Da, 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 da. Okay, and we just kind of read that like, meh, okay. Do, do, you, do you hear that story? 
I mean, if the numbers are anywhere close to right, imagine a town the size of Tyler. 100,000 people. And every one of them is a soldier, a trained soldier. And every one of those trained soldiers is listening to the voice of a tyrant king. And the only thing the tyrant king wants you to do is find David and kill him. And you're on the, you're David, you're on the run. And an entire population of trained killers is after you constantly all the time. You have delivered me from death. Like that's a daily reality for David. Every day that he wakes up and breathes again, he goes, oh, hey, God delivered me of death again today. That's awesome. Like really delivered me from death. Now we understand in Christ, there's a spiritual reality that's even greater than that. God in Christ has delivered us from the ultimate death, the worst death, spiritual death, separation from God. He has made us alive together with Christ. That even if we die yet, we will live, as Jesus said in the resurrection story at Lazarus's funeral. The second thing that David points out is that God has de- delivered his feet from stumbling. He's kept him from falling over. This is what God has done. God has delivered me from death and he's delivered my feet from stumbling. And why would God do this? As we get ready to close this morning, why would God do this for David and then more fully for us in Jesus Christ, the glorious deliverer uh, from our enemy? Why would God do this for us? Notice what David says, and it is true for us still today. Why has God done all of this for us? So that I may walk before God in the light of of the living or more literal translation, the light of life, which is what Jesus calls himself. There's very much a Jesus reference here at the end of the Psalm. Why has God delivered me? Not just for my own sake, but that my life might be lived out before God In the land of the living in such a way that I reflect the light of God's glory to those around me. Which includes those enemies that David has been praying about. Like when he says that, I'm living this life out for the glory of God in front of everyone here who can see it. And I want my enemies to have no room to mock God, nor do I want my life to bring shame upon the name of the most high God. I have been brought out of death. I have been brought out of stumbling so that I can listen. This is garden of Eden language so that I can walk before God in the light of life. What was Adam's great blessing? He walked with God in the garden of the cool of the day. What did the disciples get to do with Jesus? They walked with the Lord and the kingdom that he had made. What do we get to do in future glory one day? We get to walk down those golden pathways and along those rivers of life and take from those trees that heal the nations and there will be no darkness and there's no need for the sun or the moon for the light of the lamb will be the glory thereof and its gates will forever be open because there will be no enemies that would come in and try to over 
overthrow us anymore. And we will all just walk in the light of the love and the glory of God. This is the beautiful thing that Christ has done. This is what God has done for us in Christ. And so, friend, as I close, I ask the question. And it's the question that David asked in the psalm, in in the chorus, if you will. Verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Friend, I don't know what you're afraid of this morning. I don't know what has you shaken this morning. I don't know what has your word, the world turned upside down on itself this morning. There's a host of things, and they're real things things that you probably really should be concerned about, should be afraid of, should have some trepidation about, should have some anxiety about. But friend, when all of the promises of God in Christ are yes, what can mere man do to me? And the Apostle Paul laid this out beautifully in the book of Romans. Beautifully in the book of Romans. And I want to close with the reading of this. Flip over, if you will, with me, please, to Romans. Go to chapter 8. I'm going to read this, and then when I finish reading this, I'm going to pray. And we'll stand and we'll sing a song of response together. But in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, the Apostle Paul writes, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words when we're afraid and we don't know what to say. We're confused. We can't find the words. When we're worried and we're anxious. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall Shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who is against us? What can mere man do to me? It's almost like Paul read the Old Testament. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate? No, I love it's not what. Who? The enemy. This is personified who will separate us from the love of Christ will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword just as it is written for your sake we are being put to death all day long we're being considered sheep as to the slaughter but in 
all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is our gracious deliverer from the enemy. Thank you that even when we should be afraid and we often are afraid, there is nothing for us to truly fear for nothing can separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we thank you for it in his name. Amen. I invite you to stand.